You know, when we're younger, we have something called crushes, right? <laughs> um, they aren't a big deal, but there's definitely a difference between having a crush and liking someone, right? This isn't like a, this isn't a biblical thing. This is just my own thoughts, right? Um, having a crush is, at least what, when I think about it, is kind of a silent one-person type of thing. Like I, I have a, I'm crushing on someone. Is that the right verb to you? <laughs> I have a crush on someone, right? And it's like it's kind of my own thing, and the other person doesn't really know, right? But when you like someone, it's, it's different, right? It's different. Because as you get older and you start to kind of experience the world more and you kind of grow up a little bit more, it's different than having a crush because when you like someone, man, you can't hide it. You just can't. It's something that kind of boils up inside of you. It, it comes up to, to the front of your throat and, and you, just, you just have to let it out, right? You're, you're talking to the person, you're right? You know, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good. I like you, right? It just, it just comes out. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But you, know, just, I, you, you, you like someone, right? Just, you just have to express it and you tell the other person. And there's this huge difference between just having a crush and liking someone. But as large as the difference is between having a crush and liking someone, it can't even begin to compare to the difference between liking someone and loving someone. You see, love is entirely different. It becomes the foundation of who you are. Because for a lot of us, we can be thought of as a person of love. And for us, we worship a God whose main characteristic is love. He's not a God of like. He's not a God of crushes. He's a God of, of love. You see, love isn't just an emotion. Love becomes your motivation. Your habits, your behavior, your actions all change because you love someone. And sometimes, you see, sometimes it can actually make the irrational seem pretty rational. And I've, and I've unfortunately seen this with a lot of my friends who have grown up and they've gone in one habit for a long time, they've lived a certain way, and all of a sudden, in an instant, they change everything about themselves. Why? Because of some girl, right? <laughs> you know, I was watching a, a cartoon a few days ago, don't, don't ask me why, but I was just watching this, and, and the main character, um, he was worried for his friend who fell in love, uh, but, but it was with a girl who just wasn't right for him. And so he's talking about it, and he says, when you're in love, it's like wearing rose-colored glasses. But when you have rose-colored glasses on, all the red flags just look like flags, right? <laughs> I, okay, I, just, I love that. <laughs> but even with love, right, even with love, and even when you're married, it can be difficult. And one thing that I've been able to personally see is that there are a lot of happy marriages, but... There's no such thing as an easy marriage. And even in the happiest of marriages filled with love, things can begin to grow stale and fall apart. And it's why marriage counselors, they say to think back of the times when you first fell in love. And for me, I've had the privilege of being able to talk with a lot of older couples. 
And for them, a lot of them, the reason why they've told me that they're still so happy is because they, when they see their spouse, they don't see the wrinkles, they don't see the, 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 the gray hairs or anything. They see them not as a 60 or 70-year-old person. They see them as that 20-something-year-old that they got married to. You see, James has been writing this letter to this church. And he's been telling them how to put their faith in action. He says, if you are a Christian, then this is how you should behave. And if you are a Christian, then this is how you should act. And if you are a Christian, then these are the words that you should be saying, and these are the words that you shouldn't be saying. And for three chapters, he is guiding us in how we should be. But in this one passage that we read, James, he uses one word, and this one word was meant for one specific thing. It was meant to reorient our hearts. Because for a lot of us, and I can attest to this too, that we serve and we give and we are trying to be like Christ more and more. And we hear these sermons every single week. And every single week, we come here and we try to do more. And we try to do more. And the end result is that we get bitter. And the end result is that we get angry. And the end result is that we give our hearts, our blood, our sweat, our tears. And, our, and, and what, we cut, what we get back is nothing. And this was the same situation in the early church. James, he knows this. And he knows that for the past three chapters, he's been telling these people to go, to do, to go. But there's the danger that they would forget why they were doing this. And so he uses one word to reorient them. And now, it's not a nice word, but it's a simple biblical truth. Because in chapter 4, he says, you adulterous people. What is James saying here? It's interesting because in the Greek, James is not saying, you adulterous people. He's saying, you adulteresses, the female version. He's saying to this church that he's writing to, you are brides who are being unfaithful to your husbands. You see, in the Bible, there are a lot of different metaphors that are used to talk about God. You see, he is king, he is shepherd, he is servant. But there's one metaphor that is used again and again, and it's one of the most powerful, and it's that God is our husband. In the book of Hosea, there's this man whose name is Hosea, and he loves this woman named Gomer. And so he marries her, and he is dedicated to her, and he wants to be with her. But you see, Gomer isn't in love with him. She is unfaithful to him, and, and so she runs off with man after man after man. And so God, he comes to Hosea, and he says, look, what you're experiencing, this is what happened to me. 
I love this woman, the church, but they don't love me. Have you ever loved someone and they didn't love you back? Well, now you know, Hosea. In Romans 7, Paul, he says this. He says, just like a woman is married to her husband, you have died to the law so that you can belong to another. Paul, he's saying that marriage and Christianity are really similar in this way. That when you get married, you are leaving your old ways and you are turning to what's new. And in the same way, when you become a Christian, you are leaving the things that captured your heart before and you are joining Jesus Christ. But for us, we forget. We forget. And we turn back to the world. And Satan, he does this thing where he uses God's things to turn us away from him. And that's why even for us, and I think if you talk to any of the staff, to the leaders here, it's when we serve a lot, it's when we give a lot, that it's, those are some of the most dangerous times. Because it's when we give so much of ourselves that that bitterness, that that anger, that that hurt can come in. And the more we try to be like him, a lot of times the further we run away from him. And that's why in James verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This friendship that James is talking about is not just a regular friendship, a simple one. It's an emotional, physical, and spiritual attachment. And so James is telling the church that, look, before you do anything, before you go anywhere, before you serve in these places, before you are sent out, before you go all of these other things that you have your mind set on, before you try to be more like Christ, remember why you're here. He says, remember why you started serving in the first place. Remember why you started giving in the first place. Remember why you're a Christian. Because if you know the basic foundation for why you're doing this, then your walk with God isn't going to be a trial. It's going to be a joy. We have this misconception that trying to be more like Jesus is almost like trying to tear a branch off a tree, right? A lot of times you have to twist it, you have to pull on it, and finally, finally it might snap off at the end. And that's what it feels like when we're trying to be more like Jesus. And when we're trying to follow his commands. But the Bible, it doesn't really say that. Instead, it says that we were never meant to be forced to change. We were meant to fall in love. And so there's this question that I, I want to ask you. It's a really simple one. It's just, why did you become a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? 
I'll give you a couple of seconds just to think about it. Why did you become a Christian? Hopefully it's the same reason why you got married or you want to get married. Because you fall in love. There are, you know, there are other reasons why people get married, but we like to say that the main reason why is because you fall in love. You see, being a Christian isn't a business partnership. There's no prenuptial agreement. There's no uh, thing that you sign beforehand. There's no handshake that you do that says, look, you give this percentage, and I'm going to give this percentage, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means you just simply fall in love with God. And you just want to be with him. And that's kind of what happens. And that's why even for me, I was thinking about this standing here. And for me too, I, I, you know, me preaching here, it wasn't because someone twisted my arm. It wasn't because I felt forced to or, or compelled to. It was simply because I got saved. And I'm thankful for that. And I love God and I want to proclaim and I just want you to know how much I love God too. You know, there's a psychologist named Frederick Newman and he wrote an article talking about how there are two ways people can fall in love. It's either suddenly or gradually, right? When people fall in love suddenly, there's this automatic connection that happens. It's like seeing a, a stranger across the room and your eyes just mat, your eyes just meet and then bam, something lightning like comes down, right? But most of the time, he says, most of the time, falling in love is a gradual process. It's the understanding of the person's character. It's seeing their generosity. It's seeing the way that they love other people is seeing their heart for others. And as you grow to see who they are, you realize that you love them. You see, there are people who encounter Jesus and their lives are completely changed. They know from the moment that they hear that sermon. They know from the moment that they begin to pray. They know from the moment they hear that praise song that something in their lives just clicked. And they were forever changed right then and there. Their, li their lives are 180 degrees different. But for most of us, love is a gradual thing. It's the understanding of God's character. It's the realization for what he's done for you. And as you just explore more of who he is, one day you realize that you love him and that he's your God. You see, that's the question. Why did you become a Christian? And if you're able to answer this one question, then everything else will fall into place. There's a reason why James here stresses the idea of love. And it's because love is the one motivating factor for why we should be here. There are people that I've been able to talk to, and, and actually a lot of people who've said this, they said, uh, if I'm saved, then to be honest, I can kind of live however I want because I know that later 
I'm going to go to heaven. And I would say that if you think that way, then I don't think you understand what it means to actually love. You know, a few days ago, I went to go eat at my parents' house, and I see something that I've, I've seen growing up, and it's that after we finished eating, um, I saw my dad immediately get up and then go to the sink and begin washing the dishes. Why? Is it because he has some deep joy that comes from washing dishes? Is it because he wakes up and says, like, I'm, I'm a dish guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dishes all the way. That's, that's what I want to do. Of course not. It's because he loves his wife and he wants to make her happy. You see, this is the definition of being a Christian. You are a person who is in love with Jesus Christ. And what do you do when you're in love? You want to find out everything about them. You want to find out their passions and their interests. You want to do what will please them. You want to do what makes them happy because it makes you happy. And that means that you see the laws of God not as laws, but as God's passions. When he tells us to speak lovingly, we want to simply because it makes him happy. When he tells us to serve and to give, we want to because God is passionate about serving the poor and giving, and so we want to make him happy. It's okay if that isn't something that makes you, makes your wheels turn or, or makes you super passionate. That's okay if it doesn't do that. The reason we do that is because we know that God loves those things. And we love God. And so we will do whatever we can to make him happy. But you see, it's this two-way street because we work from a motivation of love but we are also voluntarily giving our freedom away. When you're married, your motivation is love, but you are also giving a part of yourself away so that two can become one. In verse 1 and 2, James says, What causes fights among you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and do not have, and so you steal. James is saying that the main reason you are fighting and quarreling is because you are living lives that only please yourself. Your comfort, your convenience are all more important than anyone else and you aren't willing to give it up. You know, Thomas, had, Thomas Howard, he's this Catholic author, and he wrote that everyone is faced with two ways of living. Either you can live saying, my life is yours, or you can live saying, my life is mine. Either your life is more important than everyone else's, or you can say your life, or your life is more important than mine. And he goes on to say that this principle is lived out every single day, that you have to make this decision 300, 400, 500 times a day. 
And every small decision that you're constantly making, is this going to be about me or is this going to be about you? And from the minute we're born, this principle is played out. Because for the first however nine months, a mother has to give up on herself in order so that her baby can live. Parents have to give up 18 years of their lives so that their child can be raised well. Thomas Howard, he says that the only way you will truly live is to have the understanding that my life is yours. And he says that the one way you will definitely die spiritually is to have the understanding that my life is mine. You see, when we become a Christian, there is going to be certain restrictions that are placed in our lives. And it's not always going to be a black and white thing. It's not going to always be, hey, you can do this and you can't do that. It's going to be, is this beneficial for you? Is this going to help your walk with God? And what that ends up doing is that that cuts away a lot of the gray stuff. And a lot of times when we look at that, we can say, oh, we are only allowed in this small little box here. And it seems constraining. And it feels like we're giving away too much. But you see, that's the wonderful strangeness of being in love. Because when you're in love, you lose your independence and you're happy about it. You know, I remember that day when I was 19, when I was saved. And out of any other emotion, more than happiness, more than excitement, more than passion, I remembered feeling relief, just, just utter relief. And the reason why I felt such relief was because I finally felt like I belonged. And it didn't feel like a fence was put around me to keep me in. It felt like God had made this fence to, to show me that I belong there. And for me, that was such a, a freeing feeling. But I know that for a lot of us, it's really hard to be vulnerable. And it's really hard to give yourself. The idea of losing your independence is actually what stops a lot of people from ever opening their hearts. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis I've said a lot of times, and it's one of my favorites, is that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. For a lot of the people here, we have given our hearts to someone and have gotten it back trampled. We have been abused by others and you don't want to give it again. The reason why we are afraid of giving our love, the reason why we're afraid of giving our hearts is because we have been taken advantage of and maybe even cheated on. Do you realize that this is a lover who has been abused? That he is a husband who has been cheated on? He is someone who became vulnerable first, who gave up his throne, who gave up 
all of himself so that he could come here and be here with us. And yet, for us, we were the ones who threw away his heart. And every day we turn to the world, and every day we put our hopes and our trust in everything but him. Don't you realize that he is the one who has been abused? God should be the one who says, I don't want anything to do with you. And yet he comes to us first and he says, I love you. He has had his heart broken and trampled upon, and yet he is standing here waiting for you. And so for you, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid that you'll be hurt or abused in in any of those ways because he loves you, and in spite of everything, he wants to be with you. And so church, man, my, my desire for you and my hope for you is that you would just remember how good God is. Remember your first love. Life is filled with ups and downs, and in the midst of serving and giving, it can be so easy to lose our purpose. More and more, man, like, I've been able just to talk with with some of you guys, and life has been so busy. There's been so many things going on. And yet you try to be so faithful to the church, and you try to serve so much. But it's in those moments that you are serving that so many times we can lose our sense of purpose. We can lose the very foundation, and we turn away. And we become bitter, and we become angry. And in this passage here, the reason why James, he uses strong language like this is just one reason. He's, he's trying to reorient your hearts. He's saying, look, I know that you have been serving. I know that you have been doing these things. I know that you have been trying your best. But look, look, remember why you first started this. Remember why you first started serving. Remember why you first started coming to church. Remember why you first became a Christian. It wasn't because you were forced to. It wasn't because of any other reason, but simply because you love him. You fell in love. And that's it. So let's pray.